Well, good morning, everyone. If you can make your way back to your seats, we're going to continue. Great to see everybody, and welcome once again. My name is Joe Crummy. I'm going to be speaking this morning. And we're going to continue from the book of Matthew as we move along. And I uh, just want to thank again uh, Brent and Andrew who spoke the last couple of weeks while I was away. And thanks to everyone for your prayers. We had a great vacation, so thank you very much for uh, blessing us to be able uh, to go. And uh, great to be able to have time with family, so much appreciate it. Uh, Easter is only two weeks away, and so as we go through Matthew, we're going to continue uh, as we see Jesus in his whole journey of life on earth, and really we're kind of coming to the um, sort of conclusion over these next few weeks of Jesus and his purpose for coming, and as we've seen over these last several weeks, Jesus begins to share with his disciples about what's coming, that he's going to lay down his life, that he's going to be crucified, and he's now shared that with them, and we pick up uh, today's passage really at the beginning of the week of his last week here on earth, and so we're going to pick it up beginning of chapter 21, and let's read this together, and then we'll uh, take a look at some of the things from it, okay? So if you have your Bibles with you, you can follow along, or you can look up on the screen. Matthew 21, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village, and in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. That's referring to the cloaks, okay? And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, <clears throat> Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. And in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Woo! That's a little interesting thing there, isn't it? All right, well, we're going to take a look at um, this is sort of one of those famous passages about Jesus' life as he enters Jerusalem and the whole sort of, uh, you might say in your Bible, the triumphal entry. And we see here that 
In Jesus' day, it was quite common for a king to come into a city and for there sort of be a, like a parade and for people to shout and for people to put branches down and those sorts of things. So that was a common thing. But one thing that made Jesus coming as king uh, radically different was the way that he came into the city. And one of the things, instead of coming in sort of in the biggest horse out of all the stables and this big war horse and victory, Jesus came very humble on a colt led by a donkey. And so Jesus, the whole, again, as we've seen in his whole teaching, it's an upside-down kingdom that everything Jesus brings about the kingdom of God, whether it be about money, whether it be about children, whether it be about all the things that are significant, it's always different from people's common day uh, perspective on those issues. And again, when Jesus comes and talks about leadership and he talks about kingship, he's just explained to his disciples about not lording it over and that if you want to be first, you need to come last and serving one another. And Jesus gives another example coming in on this cult of this kingship is different from a worldly perspective and it's one full of humility and coming in. And a couple other things we just quickly learn as well. That Jesus, and this is important for our main part this morning, do you remember a lot of the times along the way, Jesus, when he did something, he'd do a miracle, and he'd say to the people, maybe he did the miracle too, don't say anything. Don't tell anybody. Most of the time they gossiped it anyways. But he said, now's not my time yet. So don't, and remember sometimes even the demons shouted out that he's the son of God, and Jesus would be, be quiet, and he wouldn't let them speak anymore, and he's like, my time hasn't come. Now, Jesus, this is a public sort of proclamation that he's identifying himself as the king, as the Messiah in a public way, because now he knows the time is coming. So he said to his disciples three times now, okay, here's my purpose, I'm going to die. And he said that to him, and he's just said, I'm going to give my life as a ransom. And now for the first time, because he knows only in a few days' time, He comes in publicly, and he identifies himself as the Messiah. He says to his disciples, you go get this colt and this um, donkey, and if anyone asks you, you say, the Lord has need of them. So he's identifying himself, not just as a, you know, sort of superior, but he's identifying himself with God. He's allowing people to say, Hosanna to him, which was reserved for God. And in that, he's also saying this, He's fulfilling all the Old Testament prophecies that he is the Messiah. And so he fulfills that one from Zechariah, which is quite a prominent prophecy that he quotes saying, I am the one. I'm the king who's coming into Jerusalem, into the heart of the city. So it's interesting. Jesus goes sort of from his whole being associated with the Messiah, king, savior, hidden. He now brings it public. Because he knows the time has come. And he does it in fulfilling all kinds of Old Testament scripture. We also see, even from this short example, his whole thing of kingship and his whole thing as coming as king is so different from what people expect it. You've got to remember, the Jewish people were under the Roman Empire. Okay, They were servants to them. And they expected the Messiah to come as a military champion who would come and bring victory and who would come and free them from slavery and who would come in power and he would show it to the Romans. And Jesus isn't about sort of the whole political military thing. He comes for people's lives and people's hearts. And while they're all upset with him because he's not what they said, he's healing people and he's playing with children. 
because he's going for heart and for lives. It's such an upside-down view of what we think and what they certainly thought of leaders and kingship and all those things that we can sometimes think as well. And all of this, all these things are pointing to this. All this is pointing to his upcoming death. Him identifying himself as the Messiah, as the anointed one, as the Savior, as the King of Israel. Everything that he, it's all coming to fulfillment. And this is the beginning. And Gary's going to look next week at the Passover. And on Easter Sunday, we'll look at the crucifixion. This is all pointing towards the fulfillment of God's call and God's purpose on his son, Jesus Christ. So that's sort of just an intro to get to our main thing that we're going to take a look at this morning. But Jesus is coming as king, and he's coming into Jerusalem. You've got to remember, Jerusalem is the center for the Jewish people of everything. And in the middle of Jerusalem, at the center of Jerusalem, which is the center of the world, is the temple. And that's what I want to kind of focus on this morning, is that Jesus comes as king, but he comes at, to the temple. And, I mean, Jesus causes quite a fuss, doesn't he, when he comes to the temple. And if there's anywhere sort of maybe in the Bible where you can think, you know, well, we hear that Jesus never sinned. This is one that people sometimes think Jesus sinned because he lost his temper and he went ballistic on in the temple. We think, man, Jesus, he didn't. You've got to understand what was going on here, but what all the fuss was about when Jesus came. Okay? The background is this. When you first entered the temple, which is where you went to worship God, to meet with God, the first courtyard that you went to, which was huge, okay, if you read the Old Testament, this is who it was for. It was for the non-Jewish people. It was actually for the Gentiles. And you had to get through that court before you could get, if you were Jewish, into the next sort of uh, area that was meant for you. And in Jesus' day, what had happened is, Okay, they set up this whole system because in the sacrificial system where you would go, pilgrims and all those who were displaced Jews all around would come, okay, at least once a year, and they'd come to Jerusalem, and they'd come, and they'd have to give a sacrifice for their sins and for their family. And a lot of times, because they traveled, they couldn't bring animals with them. So what they did, when they came into Jerusalem, they had to buy animals in order to sacrifice. And so the whole system of the temple where the Gentiles were supposed to be, became a whole marketplace. And to make it even more complicated, you had to have special money in order to buy those sacrifices. So you had to go and you had to get your money changed because there was only market money that then you could use. And guess what happened when the money changers changed the money? They stole it, they scammed it, they weaseled away all around, and they would scam these poor pilgrims coming, and they would make a lot of money by exchanging the money. And then they'd have to buy these animals. And you can imagine the chaos, okay? If you've ever had a picture of the New York Stock Exchange and how crazy it is and they're shouting and all that, imagine that, and then you put thousands of animals with it, okay? And if you've ever been on a farm, okay, you know it's a bit crazy, all right? So you had people buying and selling all different types of languages and money changing and animals. It was chaos, And you know what the purpose of that temple court was? That's where the Gentiles were supposed to go. If you read the Old Testament, they were supposed to go and find God there in quietness and rest. 
So you can imagine the righteous anger of Jesus coming in. And the place, the temple, where people are supposed to meet God and encounter God's manifest presence here on earth was blocked because of all the injustice and all of the scamming and all of the money and all the things that it was a big racket. And Jesus came, and no wonder he was so furious that the place where people were supposed to meet God, they were blocked from doing it. And folks, we have to understand the magnitude of where Jesus is going here. Okay? Because Jesus comes, and he begins as he's saying, okay, it's not supposed to be a den of robber. It's supposed to be a house of prayer. And if you read Mark, Mark adds this. It's supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. So Jesus is going back to God's original plan that through Abraham, all the nations would be blessed and all the nations would know God. And that's what Jesus is getting back to. Now, Jesus would even went even a more radical step because the Jewish people thought this. They thought, when the Messiah comes, he's going to cleanse the temple of all foreigners. So they were expecting when Jesus comes, even okay, whatever foreigner, Gentile, non-Jewish involvement might be there, when the Messiah comes, he'll even clean that out. And Jesus comes, and what does he do? He does the exact opposite. He begins to clear things out in order for the Gentiles to come in. Okay, do you understand the magnitude of how radical Jesus was when he went into the temple and he began saying these things? And he's quoting Isaiah. Okay, this is supposed to be a house of prayer, a house of prayer for all the nations. That's what Jesus was getting so upset about. And that's why he cleared the temple. That's why the fuss was there. The temple was supposed to be the place where people could come and that they could meet the living God. That's what the temple was. Now let's just go back a little bit, okay? And let's just take a look at the history of the temple. Okay? So you got Jesus saying in such a radical way, Okay, the Gentiles, not only are they going to st- not stay out, they're going to come in, and they're actually going to meet the living God. And we've got to go back and understand what, why the temple even came. And to understand the temple, we go all the way right back to the beginning, right back to Genesis. And we start at a place with the first human beings, Adam and Eve, and we start with a place called the Garden of Eden that you've probably heard about. The Garden of Eden was really the first temple. It was the first sanctuary because it was the place where God's presence dwelt. He walked with Adam and Eve. Now, we'll say at the outset, okay, God's presence can't be contained just to one sort of local geography area. And we see that all the way through. God is the God of heaven and earth. You can't contain him. However, God manifests his presence. He has realized presence. It's tangible with his creation. And in the early days, that was in the Garden of Eden. And it was paradise because God was there and evil wasn't. So if you can just use your imagination a little bit, okay? And if you can think of your best place on planet Earth that you're like, man, if I could think paradise, that's where it would be. Now add to it, you get to walk with God and hear his voice with no shame and no guilt and all those things. And there's no injustice and there's no suffering and there's no disease and there's no death. And you've got a full buffet all the time. And the only thing you can't do is eat the fruit from one tree out of multitudes. That sounds pretty good. That was the original temple. That was the dwelling place of God. And we see as Adam and Eve, our forefathers, they chose, and as we talked about this morning, they chose to 
not trust God, and they chose to listen to themselves and to the lies of the enemy, and they chose to distrust God about their identity and their significance and their meaning and their purpose, and they ate from the tree they weren't supposed to, and it opened their eyes, and in that, sin entered the world, and from that, separation from God and separation from one another, and out of that comes all the consequences of pride, which leads to selfishness, which leads to violence and war and poverty, and all the things we see on planet Earth started from back there. And there were consequences for that decision. And this is one of the consequences we read about in Genesis chapter 3. So we're only three chapters into the Bible. Okay, It doesn't take very long. And this is what we read at the end. Okay? Because of this sin, they had to leave paradise. They were barred from the Garden of Eden. And we read this at the very end of chapter 3 as a consequence. We read this in verse 24. It says, God drove out the man... And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Okay? You'll never get any better sort of story in any science fiction thing than the real thing from the Bible. God places cherubim, an angel, and a flaming sword that goes in every way to guard the way so that we're barred from returning the Garden of Eden. And the question is, if you are to get back into paradise, into the Garden of Eden, into the presence of Almighty God, you've got to get by that sword. And if you try to get by that sword, guess what? It's a literal... Okay? The sword's going to cut you. The sword's going to kill you. And we see in this whole history, after Eden... In God's mercy, there's this sort of partial access to God. And God begins that whole journey with humanity. But he allows them to live. He spares their lives. I mean, he could have killed them as a consequence. But in his mercy, he barred them from paradise. But he allows them to live. And we read in the Bible the whole history from that point on of God relating to his people. And God choosing a guy named Abram, picking him. I want a people for myself. And from that, we get Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. From that, we get the whole thing of the Exodus and Moses bringing his people out. And we get this tabernacle. You remember that? They got the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, they got the Ten Commandments. And the tabernacle was like a tent. They'd pitch it. And they'd have a special tent inside of it. And all the way along, and we get to a guy named David who had in his heart, you know what? We live in palaces, but God doesn't have a home. And God should have the best home. And he knew we need the presence of of God. And so he desired in his heart, okay, to build a house for God. And God said, Great idea, but your son Solomon's gonna do it. And Solomon built a temple, a physical temple in the heart of Jerusalem, where the almighty presence of God would be with his people. Okay, and this is the story of the Old Testament. And remember on that day when the temple was dedicated and consecrated to God, God's presence came and filled the temple, and all those who were worshiping fell flat on their face. They couldn't even look. They couldn't even stand it because God's presence was in the house. And God set up a system of sacrifices. Remember that sword? There's consequences to be paid being sin. And blood has to be shed. That's how God set it up. Because you just think about this. Okay? And... This happens all the time. Okay? 
if you've ever been the victim of a crime, you know how much that wounds and hurts and the injustice of it all and the pain that's caused from that and the scars that that leaves. How would you like if you went to court and the judge said something like this? Well, you know, can't you just kind of forget about it? And can't you just kind of, you know, we'll just kind of forget about it. You'd be like, no! If you knew the injustice and all the pain that that caused, there has to be a price to be paid. We expect that. It has to be more than just sorry. There's a price to be paid. And that's what it is with God in our sin. And that's what that sword represented. There has to be a cost that goes beyond just sorry. Someone has to pay the price. And God set up this whole system in the Old Testament, okay? And trust me, we're getting to a point with this, okay? I'm trying to build my legal argument for where we're going. God set up a system of sacrifices that you would go and that you would present a lamb, you present a goat, you present some offering where the blood was shed. Someone had to pay the price and that would go and that would cleanse you and that would get you right with God in a legal standing. And one day a year, because in the middle of the temple, there was the Holy of Holies and that was where God's presence, and there was a big veil that prevented people from going in and only one guy, one day a year, Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement in the Jewish system where the high priest would go in and he'd have to take blood with him Okay, and he was only allowed in one day a year. And he'd have to take blood. He'd have to make a sacrifice for his own sin. He'd have to make a sacrifice for the people. Okay? And blood was shed. Okay? But here's the thing. Only the high priest was able to go in. And that blood that was shed only legally got the Jewish people right with God. It still had no effect on the Gentiles or those who weren't Jewish. So they were still far outside, and they weren't forgiven. They weren't made right with God. Now, folks, you have to understand the magnitude of what Jesus is saying when he cleanses the temple. Okay? He's not just doing it, okay? and we hear a lot today, that the church is getting too commercial and the church is too materialistic. And if Jesus was here today, he'd get rid of all our things. That's one aspect of it, but that's not really the main thing. Okay? The main thing Jesus is saying is, As he comes, Jesus is going to be the one that's going to make the temple and the whole sacrificial system obsolete. He's not just overturning the tables because he's upset about them changing money and scamming people. That's one part of it. He's overturning the tables and all that because he's saying, you're not going to need them anymore. Both for the Jewish people and for us who aren't Jewish. Hallelujah that he's going to make a way for the Gentiles to enter in, that there's going to be a payment made that's going to give access to God and return us to paradise. That's what Jesus is saying. And if those who had ears to hear when Jesus was proclaiming that, yes, they might have been upset that he overturned the temple. They were over. They were even more shocked that what Jesus was saying was that there's a time coming when the Gentiles are going to have access to God. So Jesus is saying that he is the one that's going to come and that he is going to be the one that's going to be the sacrifice. 
Now, folks, if you were here during worship, okay, we had two things that were shared that I was just like, thank you, Lord, that's very helpful. Okay, Keith shared about his friend having to meet the queen and all the things and protocol that you have to do and that all the different things that you don't, you just don't have access to the queen, okay? <laughs> There's a lot of things you got to do and you got to be pretty special and you got to have to do something and then you have to follow all the protocol, okay? That's one illustration in the modern day of how old times, how you couldn't get to God without following a whole bunch of different things, okay? So that was one important thing that you can kind of get your head around a little bit about what's coming. Okay? The other thing is that we sang about this whole thing about Jesus being the Lamb of God. So how many times did we sing this morning about seeing a lamb who was slain? You're kind of going like, what in the world is that talking about? Gary will talk about it more next week about the Passover. But Jesus is pointing in a few days' time that he's going to lay down his life. And you know that sword that was in front of, you know, barring us from the Garden of Eden? Jesus was going to be the one who takes that sword. That that sword was going to kill the Lamb of God. That's who Jesus is, our sacrifice. But the amazing thing happens when that sword kills Jesus, guess what happens to that sword? The sword gets broken. So Jesus, because he was the perfect one and the perfect sacrifice, the sword killed him, as we're going to see when he died on the cross. But Jesus broke the sword. That that payment that was needed, the blood that needed to be shed, Jesus was the once and for all, we see in the book of Hebrews, once and for all perfect sacrifice that he removed the sword for us to have access in so why was andy jones excited about singing before the throne of god because andy jones okay he's not perfect and when has sinned in his life and andy jones understands i don't really have any right or any claim to have access to worship a living god and actually i deserve death and punishment and there's a sword that prevents me from ever having access to God. But Andy Jones knows there's one who came who was a perfect sacrifice, and his name is Jesus. And Jesus took that punishment that Andy Jones deserved and that Jesus paid in full. And now Andy gets to walk in to the presence of Almighty Living God through Jesus Christ. And Andy can come, and he can worship the living God. And he knows that his name is graven on the hands of the living God. He knows that his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. He knows that God loves him. He knows that he has access to be able to worship God. He knows that God is available 24-7. He doesn't have to go to temple. He doesn't have to travel to Jerusalem. He doesn't have to go through a series of priests or a series of sacrifices. He comes because of Jesus Christ, and he can worship Almighty Living God and know that he's forgiven. Therefore, he can say, Hallelujah! And he can be excited. And the world that gets excited about all kinds of crazy, temporary things, folks, we're going to worship God forever. And we're going to cry out, God, you are holy and you are worthy. And we're going to say, Jesus, you are worthy as the lamb that was slain. And we're going to fall down on our faces and we're going to worship almighty, eternal, living God. And we can do that because Jesus Christ put the sword through him 
and he demolished the sword that gave us access back into paradise. And we've got a little bit of paradise here on earth because God's spirit is in us, and we're the temple now of the Holy Spirit. And we come together as the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we've got a little bit of heaven here this morning because we're tasting what's going to come. And someday it's going to be paradise restored because we're going to live in heaven, and we're going to be new bodies just like Jesus. We're going to see Jesus. No more pain, no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more death. We're going to live forever. We're going to reign with Jesus. Hallelujah! Hallelujah. And that's the truth of the gospel good news. We don't deserve any of that, do we? But Jesus paid the price. And when we put our hope and our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, he gives us what rightfully belongs to him, and he takes on what was rightfully ours. Folks, that never gets boring. That's amazing every time. Every time we're together, that's amazing. That is amazing. I might never get to see the queen. Okay? I might never go through all the protocol, all those things. I might never have access. But today, I have access to the living God. Even here in a university lecture hall that isn't consecrated for God. Because okay? God's here by his spirit. And folks, Jesus is saying, as he overturns all the tables in the temple. Yes, he's against commercialism and all those things. Yes, but that's like part B. His main thing is saying, you're not going to need the temple anymore. You're not going to need a sacrificial system. You're not even going to need a priesthood system because I'm the Lamb of God. I am the great high priest. And a time is coming when you won't need any of this. And we see in AD 70, when the Romans destroyed the temple, okay, That doesn't really affect us. No offense to anyone. Because we have a Savior who lives. Who rules and reigns in heaven. Jesus will make a new way. That all Jew and Gentile can come and they can live in the presence of Almighty God. And folks, I say it all the time and forgive me. It'll be on my tombstone, I think. It doesn't, this is good news, folks. There's nothing else like it on planet Earth. This is the best news. Because this is dealing with real spiritual life, both here on planet Earth and in the life to come. Now, just to close, remember that little story at the very end of this? And you think, maybe Jesus sinned on this one too. Do you remember? You think Jesus just just ticked off, right? He goes out, he's hungry. This tree has no fruit. And he's like, curse this tree. That's kind of how we read it. Kind of like, whoa, Jesus, like, settle down, man. Like, Jesus didn't have his coffee this morning or something. He's a little bit edgy. That's how we can kind of read it. We don't have the full story here in Matthew. But if you go to Mark, okay, it's expanded a bit out. Jesus is using that fig tree, okay? That, that fig tree had leaves, and if it had leaves, it should have had fruit, okay? Where there's leaves, there should have been fruit. And Jesus isn't cursing the tree. He's saying the tree is already cursed, okay? Something's not right. It has some sort of disease or cancer or something because it should have produced fruit. So Jesus isn't cursing the tree. He's saying the tree is already cursed. There's something wrong with it. And if you go to the book of Mark, Jesus explains this more to his disciples, and he's saying this, 
at the temple. There's a lot of things going on. It has like a lot of leaves, but really there's no fruit. And that's what Jesus is getting at. And it's this whole thing of worship. Of any place at the temple where you go to meet God, there should be praise and worship and heartfelt thanks and everything to God. What do we see? Jesus comes, and the outcasts, the lame and the blind and all that, who Jesus heals, they're the ones rejoicing, and the religious people are upset. And there's children singing, Hosanna to the son of David. And they're like, Jesus, don't you even see what these kids are doing? And Jesus is saying, haven't you ever read? From the lips of babes and infants, God has ordained praise. So I don't want to just leave at the temple that we have access to God. Hallelujah. Folks, we have access to God in order for us to live a worshipful life for God and to God. And we want to be not just the appearance. And you read every commentary, and every commentary says this. Jesus was judging Israel and their temple worship, and Jesus can judge his church today with the exact same thing. There can be the appearance of all kinds of things. Lots of leaves, but is there any fruit? And folks, we can come, and we can be fooled as well. We can have a great worship service. We can have a great band. We can have great music. We can all these things. But folks, it goes beyond just appearance. Is there fruit in our lives? And that's what Jesus is saying. Saying, what about today? So folks, I just want to encourage us as we believe this good news and we receive that Jesus is the Lamb of God, that he's made a way. It doesn't stop. That's just the entry point. Because from that, we can live worshiping lives. And so the challenge for us is individually, okay, We don't want just an appearance. We want something heartfelt. And if we're honest with ourselves, we can honestly say, maybe I have something, you know, deal with anger. Man, we've been taking the parenting course. I got a lot of issues, okay? (laughs) Go and you're like, man, I need a lot of help. You know what? That's a good place to start. It's just being honest. Say, God, I need your fruit of the Spirit and these things because I don't want just the appearance. I want fruit in my life that's worshiping to you and that's going to be a blessing because I'm more like Jesus in everything that I do. Okay? And as we're redeemed, as we're bought back, okay? Okay? As Tim was just sharing that about how God does love us and God cares for us and sometimes God has plans that he puts us in places that we think we must be getting punished, but he's moving us from point A to point B and we don't even know it. Okay? As we're redeemed people, folks, our hearts should be full of joy and praise. And so it's not just hearing good news. It's believing and applying that good news into every aspect of our lives. That we are a worshipful people. That we're a worshiping church. That's one of the things I love about our church. Not in a prideful way, just in a very thankful way. That we're a worshiping church that's thankful for what God has done. And that affects every part of our lives. As part of being a joy-filled people, as we understand the truth of what Jesus Christ has done, that should overflow into every aspect of our lives, that we should be a joy-filled people. Not in a condemning, we've got to put something on, okay, way. By all means, as we said before, every time we come, okay, I'm not saying that we have to look perfect or that we have to be happy, happy all the time, even in our pain, even in our suffering, even in our sorrow. 
we can still be a worshiping people. And that honors God. So this morning, Jesus came. Okay, we're getting close to Easter. Jesus comes as the king. But he comes as a king that's totally different from what the Jewish people thought and from what we sort of sometimes expect that Jesus would be a king sort of in our human terms. Jesus came as the humble, serving king. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom. Jesus has come to replace the temple that we don't need, that whole series of sacrifices, geography, physical buildings anymore. Jesus is the sacrifice, and we are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And as we do that, we live worshipful lives in our attitudes, in our actions, in our songs, all these things from the heart. That We don't want to be an unfruitful. We don't want it just the appearance. We want the real life fruit that's coming from becoming more like Jesus every day. I hope that maybe a familiar passage that we can kind of just glance over. Hey, Jesus wrote in Jerusalem, Palm Branches, Palm Sunday. We can miss the whole point of it all. Jesus came to radically show he's the one who's the sacrifice. He's the one who's replaced the whole temple system. He's the one that allows us now to be temple of the Holy Spirit so that we can live lives that worship him. Okay, Let's pray. Let's ask for God to continue just to cement that into our hearts. Father, we thank you this morning for the truth of your word. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we now have access to you because of him, through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection, through his perfect sacrifice, his payment, that justice has been paid. The payment has been made. It is finished. And we can receive and we can rejoice and we can rest and that Jesus has done it. And Father, I pray today, Lord, for those of us, God, who are Christians, Lord, I pray that this wouldn't get old. Lord, I pray that we would embrace this great truth every single day. God, I pray, Lord, that we would live worshipful lives. God, heartfelt, Lord, knowing that we have access to you. And Father, we look forward to a great future, Lord, of paradise with you. And Father, I pray for those who might feel far off, who are far off. God, I pray that this good news message, Lord, that this is for everyone, young, old, rich, poor, doesn't matter their ethnic background, Lord, this is for you have made the once and for all sacrifice to have access to you for everyone on planet Earth, that we know your glory is going to cover the earth, your presence because your people from every tongue, tribe, and nation will be worshiping you and knowing you. Father, would you lead people today to Jesus by your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Gary. Mm-hmm.